0: Reading corner today, we have a thrilling guest with us. It's Sophie Mackenzie, and she is without doubt the queen of the teenage thriller. And not only that, Sophie was one of this year's World Book Day authors with the book, The One Pound Book Boy Missing. But today we're going to talk about her new novel, which is called Truth or Dare, uh, which I would describe as an eco-thriller, but I'm not sure if that's how Sophie would describe it. So I'm going to welcome her into the reading corner and ask whether she's happy with that as a description.
1: I am, absolutely. And hello, it's lovely to be here. Um, Yeah, I I think Truth or Dare is very much in tune with a lot of the books I've written in that it's definitely a a thriller. So it's, you know, hopefully full of action, full of twists and turns, but also that at its heart, there's a teenage main character who has to make some really tough choices, in this case, really tough ethical choices. And because the backdrop to those choices are uh, to do with the environment and uh, uh, sustainable processes that go, sorry, that makes sound very dry. But that is the, the environmental issues are the, definitely the backdrop to, to, to this story.
0: So I think an eco-thriller actually sums it up really well. It is about family too, and maybe we'll come on to that a little bit later. Uh, but I think we need to tell listeners a bit about the story to set it up for them.
1: Sure. Well, um, the main character is Maya. And the story begins as she is arriving um, in Cornwall to spend the summer with her grandparents and her little brothers with her. Um, And she very quickly discovers that Gran, who runs a local business called Peyton Soap. So it's got the family name um, in, in the in the company name. She quickly discovers that Gran, who's pretty brisk and no nonsense, is expecting her to take on a summer job at the factory so at first she's kind of annoyed about this and, and reluctant but she does actually really enjoy working there in the end and gets to meet people and um uh, and, and finds the you know finds that she takes to some of the things that she's doing at work really well so there's that whole side of, of, of the story. But where it really kind of kicks off is, again, very early on, where she meets a boy who's called Bear, who lives in an eco group in the woods nearby. So they live a, a very different existence to your average person. They uh, Everything's solar powered. Um, they have communal, loads of communal things like communal toilet, communal shower area. So they're living in in um, a really strong community way, trying to live very sustainably in tune with nature. And they have been in dispute with Gran in particular, as, as well as some other businesses. So there's a lot of tension between the family business that Maya um, or the, the family that maya is part of and particularly the family business the, the factory the manufacturing of the soaps which is done you know grand says in a very em- environmentally friendly way and this eco group who live in the nearby woods so that's the sort of setup mm-hmm. and she uh, and maya finds herself really drawn to this this boy bear and the group that he he lives in but and this is really at the heart of the story in in almost the the, the first meeting, she senses or she discovers this sort of friction between the two sides, and she lies about knowing um, either side. So she ends well. She ends up I, I, maybe lying isn't the right word because it's a lie of omission. She ends up deceiving mm-hmm. both sides. She keeps her connection to the big local employer that's her family business secret from Bear and the Eco Group. But she also lies to Gran about her new friend. She doesn't say that she's met Bear and his friends and family at the eco group. And then she, well, I don't want to give too much of the story away, but that conflict really runs through the heart of it. And uh, she discovers that perhaps her gran's company isn't as green as it's claiming to be. And it basically leads her down this rather perilous path and uh, an involving... Um, you know betrayal desperate race against time a lot of drama a lot of action um really high stakes uh which build and build and
0: build towards the climax as i said i don't want to give too much of the story away such a good setup that and and lies or secrets deceptions are such good ways to propel a story because they certainly keep you on the edge of your seat I want to delve into Maya's character. She's a very fashion conscious young lady and she enjoys putting together lovely outfits, but they're quite cheaply produced. Well, I mean, teenagers don't necessarily have a lot of money to make decisions about buying expensive clothes, um, but this is important to the story too, isn't it?
1: Yeah. I, I, running through this, this whole story is the way that maya's eyes are opened to uh well uh, you've picked on one particular thing fast fashion and and what really the what i wanted to show through the way her character develops and what she learns is that it, it's fantastic to be interested in fashion it's fantastic to be involved in fashion and um to be creative in that way is is a wonderful thing and it's a huge uh has huge potential as a way of allowing people to be creative, as Maya discovers she is, in terms of her design skills and the and the ways in which she ends up being very helpful to the company that she's uh, w- working at, the family company. But at the same time, there's a real dark side to the fashion industry, which is in terms of the way clothes are produced. And, and that, that dark side is both the impact on the environment of the way in which clothes are mass produced and also the conditions in which some people are working to produce them. And, uh, and what I wanted to try and get across to Maya is, is kind of what I think is probably the case with lots of teenagers. It certainly would have been how I would have probably looked at all this, which is, yeah, I know that this is a big issue. And I, uh, you know, it's not that she's unaware that these things are going on. I mean, no uh, teenagers are super aware of all, mm-hmm. all, all this stuff. So it's not that she's not aware, it's that she's kind of sort of, well, what can I do? Which, you know, again, is a really understandable reaction. And she makes the point, I think, at one at one point, it's easy to say um, we, we shouldn't be buying fast fashion when you can't afford to buy anything else. But she does learn, I think, to find a compromise between, between those things through the book. And that was really important for me because... This story grew out of two ideas, really, and one of them was the wanting to write about the environment, but really not to do it in a preachy way and definitely not to do it in the context that suggests it should be up to the young to save the planet, which I think is the most unfair pressure that we are as older people we are putting on younger people um and of course the issues of waste and recycling and the values and priorities people have they've all been written about a lot and I and I didn't feel that I had either the expertise or indeed the inclination to write another sort of dry treatise about that stuff there's loads of that out there and it's a lot of it's really valuable information what I do is write stories and I wanted to write a story in which Those issues could come up as part of the story. Mm -hmm. So, the idea of of, of fashion itself being a wonderful creative thing, but fast fashion being an exploitative and damaging thing was really where I was coming from. And I tried Mm -hmm. to show that just through the way that Maya encounters those
0: issues through the Mm -hmm. story. What I really loved about your story was the the areas of grey. There are no real villains in this story. You know, people are trying to do the right thing. And you make that very clear when you, you you know, you're writing about the factory and the efforts that it's making. But there's so much mistrust. You know, the battle lines are drawn. And really, it's a lack of trust. And well, it's prejudice, basically, between the two groups.
1: Absolutely. It, it, though You put your finger on it. It is lack of trust and it is prejudice. And for me, a lot of that, both in the story and in the world, comes out of people just not communicating, which means they're not they're not listening because it's only through listening and communicating that we can move forward. Otherwise people just say stuck in their little silos, shouting into the, shouting into the wind really. So that was, you know, I, I said there were two things I wanted to write about. And the second of them was to make the characters really complex and rounded, to have them face real and relatable challenges. I, I think the most successful young adult teenage stories revolve around believable individuals facing moral dilemmas and that that idea of the moral dilemma and the fact that there are no easy answers and sometimes choices can be really difficult there's one point where maya looks out over some smaller small children playing and she thinks back to how simple life is when you're little. Um, And of course at no age is life simple. You know, there's, there's, there were always issues, but it, it is easy. The older you get to have the perspective as you look back, Oh, everything was much easier then. And, and, and I think to a certain extent as a teenager, looking back on a childhood it's definitely true that as a child you're not aware of of some of these gray areas you're talking about that as a teenager you start to become aware
0: mm-hmm. of interesting um something else that struck me was that betrayal if you like can come from within your own circle and i don't want to say too much that gives the story away but both groups in a sense have a betrayal from within
1: yeah that's true isn't it I hadn't
0: thought about it quite
1: like that but you're right yeah and I think that's part of what hopefully makes the story more rounded and more complex that you can see that there are many positions people can hold and many layers of of ethics Mm. that that they can bring to their their own thinking and from uh, their own decisions so Mm. yeah and and I, I remember um gosh I think it might have been Philip Pullman in an interview saying that uh, and I I read this when I was just starting to write so a long time ago now but it really stayed with me because he said something like the really interesting stories are not between good and evil but between two sides both of whom think they're in the right the the villain who kind of does that sort of twirling of the moustache and saying I'm evil and I will crush the I will crush the world, that in real life, most people who do terrible things find a way of justifying it to themselves. And mm-hmm. and that to me is is um a really interesting thing to explore because if we can find a way of communicating and engaging, then to me that's the only way that there's hope
0: mm-hmm. for
1: changing people's terrible um, stances on things that I consider terrible and and terrible decisions and terrible actions uh, and actually turn things around which perhaps sounds naive but I I think it's the ultimately the only way that isn't that doesn't
0: end in bloodshed Mm -hmm. ultimately I wonder if we could hear a bit from the story now that we know a little bit more about it Sure. Well, in, in the extract
1: I'm going to read, um, Maya's obviously connected with this eco group and she's started going on missions with them. And they're they're on a mission to find out who is dumping waste near a local stream. And it's nighttime. So she's had to sneak out of the house because obviously Gran doesn't know about any of this. Uh, so she's there along with people from the eco group, including her friend Bear, and they're hiding. As the van, which they think is going to be dumping the waste, who they've seen here before, appears and then stops. And what they're trying to do is identify who's behind this waste dumping. The thud of a door indicates the driver is getting out. Seconds later, he appears, stockily built, wearing gloves and a cap pulled low on his forehead. I can't see his face. He opens the van's back doors and starts hauling out a series of metal containers, sending them hurtling down the hillside towards the stream at the bottom. Damn, Bear whispers, his breath hot against my ear. We're too far away to see anything useful. The driver has already chucked out what must be half the contents of the van. Strips of dented metal, flattened cardboard packaging and bundles of stiff plastic sheeting follow the containers down the hill. A series of Big plastic bottles, like the ones used for storing distilled water at the factory, bump past the tree. If I could just get a little way up the hillside, I could use my phone to take a picture, not just of the van, but of the driver himself. I'm going to get a bit closer, I whisper. No, it's too dangerous. Bear reaches out to grab my arm, but I dart away. I stay in the shadows, crouching low as I run up to the front of the van, then creep silently alongside it. The thumps of the last few bottles and containers hitting the ground echo towards me. I can see the van driver more clearly now. He's pushed his cap back off his forehead and the thick, dark lines of his eyebrows stand out against his pale face. Sweat gleams on his brow as he hauls a huge plastic barrel out of the back of the van and rolls it across the grass. I take up my phone, careful to shield its light with my body and check that the camera flash is switched off. Eyebrows man moves, blocking my view of the barrel he's dumping. I take a tiny step forward, trying to get a better angle. My foot knocks against the turned out wheel. I stumble, thrown off balance. (gasps) A yelp flies out of my mouth and I freeze, terror coursing through me. Eyebrows head jerks up. He stops heaving stuff out of the van. I shrink against the side of the van, fear shooting like ice up my spine. Eyebrows grunts. What the? He mutters. I press my cheek against the cold metal. The dry earth crunches as eyebrows, takes a step in my direction. Another second and he'll see me.
0: Mm-hmm. And there is some real edge of your seat uh, stuff going on in here. And we have bomb scares and all sorts of other things going on. Um, you've been writing thrillers for many years and I'm sure that you have acquired over those years you know skills that are very specific to thriller writing you know what you you know what you're doing so can you share with us some of the kind of key things that you think make a good thriller
1: well a lot of what makes a good thriller in my opinion is what makes a good story so i think there's a there's a lot of general things in terms of writing novels uh, and this is true for any age that make any story work, whether it's a thriller for for teens um, or a younger book or a book for adults or a different genre entirely. And those things are so important um, that I can't not say them before talking about thriller specifically. And And they're fundamentally a really, really strong story. That's what I need anyway. And very compelling characters who we feel invested in. We don't have to like all of them, not at all, but we need to really care about what happens to them and be invested in their their journey through the story. With a thriller, I think you also need to really think about making sure that lots of stuff happens and that when things happen, they are both unexpected because... If the reader can see them coming, then the that makes the story predictable, which makes it dull. So they have to be unexpected, but at the same time, they need to be convincing. So you can't write a um a contemporary thriller with all the the, the twists and turns that involve the sort of things that would happen in the contemporary real world that we all live in, and then have some sort of alien fantasy element beaming in to save the day at the very end, because that would feel implausible, which is, you know, nothing against aliens and fantasy, fantastic, but you can't just shoehorn them in at the end of something that's, that's set in the, the in a very different world and, and expect the reader not to go, well, that, that's I. Well, why? Where did that come from? And that that makes the the end an ending, or indeed, if it, wherever it happens in the story, it makes it very unsatisfying. So that's that. I think is a really key thing for thrillers: having lots of stuff happening and making sure every time it does that, what happens is unexpected but convincing.
0: I must say that the story also has shades of dark, but also light, and the light comes in. I think through one of my favourite characters. I love Grandad. He might not be central to the plot, but he's sort of central to the mood in some ways. Hmm.
1: Well, I I think Grandad is one of the few characters in the book who, from the very beginning, actually has a sense of understanding you know he doesn't uh, about what's going on and and the issues that are involved so unlike some other members of his family he doesn't jump to conclusions he he thinks it's very unlikely that the eco group have done particular thing that they're accused of because he says but that's not who they are and I think he's sort of a there's a term in in writing uh, screenwriting I think for characters that it's usually applied to main characters who don't change through the story. Um, They're called traveling angels. And he's kind of that in the story. He's the, he just has, he has a bit of, you know, hard earned wisdom and he's, he's a sort of gentler presence than some of the other characters. And, and usually when he talks, he is making, he is making sense and he is uh, offering a, a more nuanced view of of the situation which unfortunately isn't a, a, a view that's available to all the characters who are often quite stuck in their own rigid positions
0: And he has a lovely habit of sending little inspirational quotes in pack lunches and uh yes i did like that very much indeed so when you're not writing i know that you also run creative writing workshops Tell us a little bit about that work and how people could uh, book onto one of those if indeed they can.
1: No, no, a- absolutely. Um, well, I do. I do a certain amount of teaching through the City Lit uh, and their classes, their teaching classes, um, as opposed to workshops. I also have my own setup where I do private tutoring for people who who these are I don't do lessons um, as in sort of let's look at this technique, although a lot of my feedback will cover particular bits of craft writing craft. But I I work with people individually who usually who are already quite committed to writing and and want to get feedback on what they do. And uh, I actually set up um, a website earlier this year which has all the information about that. So uh, that's storystepslondon.com if anyone's interested in taking a look.
0: Do you find it useful to get feedback from other writers when you're working on something or have you moved beyond that?
1: Oh, absolutely not. When I went to this, I, I teach at the City Lit, but I also attended a City Lit writing course when writing stories was just sort of this vague idea I had after I got made redundant nearly 20 years ago. And I met in the, the course I did in the first few weeks, the teacher suggested people should get together um, and form a sort of almost a support group, really, a sort of where we bring our stories and get critique. Uh, off off each other and and that is a great thing to do with other aspiring writers because they understand what it feels like to put your work forward and hopefully will be gentler and more constructive in 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 the feedback they offer so i and a few other people we set up a small group and we are still meeting we bring our chapters and we give each other feedback and I find it invaluable so, I also learn a lot from from the teaching I do. So when I make a point to students or offer people writing in classes feedback um, or in my private tutoring, it it often reminds me of a principle that is important, I think is important, and makes me kind of do a bit more work on my own writing to bring that principle, to to apply that principle rather, to to bring that bit of craft into, into what I'm doing Um, because I think it's very easy to not be aware of the ways you can improve your own work and a fresh pair of eyes on that whether that's other somebody else's or or just the sort of fresh perspective that reading and critiquing critiquing other people's work can give is absolutely as I said invaluable
0: Mm. editors must love it because it means a lot of that work has gone through a pre-edit editing in a way That's true. Um,
1: But I think what's also what's also hopefully helpful is that because I've spent such a long time getting feedback on my work, this is going to sound so egotistical, I really don't have an ego about people critiquing. If I've said, what do you think? And they said, I don't think this works because of X, Y, Z then I am nothing but grateful because mm-hmm. the way I look at it, and I I really didn't at the start, I found it, I was quite defensive and I found it quite hard to get my ego out of the room. But now I'm like, wow, what a privilege that you should give me the time to give me your insights. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
0: Wonderful. And can I just say thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today in the Reading Corner. It's been such a pleasure talking to you, Sophie. Thank you. It's
1: been a real pleasure for me. Thank you so much.
0: In the Reading Corner is
1: presented by Nikki Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.